KMTT, today is Tuesday, Chafbet Tammuz, Yom Gimel, today's shi will be given by Harab Moshe Taragin in the Essentials of Avodat Hashem. And I'll be back after the shiur with the Medrash Hayomi, the Medrash of the Day. The Gemara in Soto on Daf Yud Gimel cites the image of the Jewish people of Am Yisrael marching through the desert. The Gemara says, sam shanim. All those years, as they tracked on their journey through the desert, on their way to Eretz Yisrael, they were driven, they were propelled by two arcs, side by side. One arc was a golden, transcendent arc, containing the immutable and eternal word of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, delivered from the heavens at Matantara, Mimino Eshdas Lamo, black fire on top of white fire, and the unlikely partner, or te- part of the tandem, the second Aaron, was a rudimentary coffin containing Yosef's bones, the rattling bones of an ancient grandfather. And these two arcs march side by side. And bystanders, observers, people who watch the Jews march through the desert, they would wonder, What possible association, what possible correspondence could these two arcs that couldn't be more different, what could they possibly share in common that they were placed side by side during the 40 years of the journey? Echad Shalmeis V'echad Shalshchina one Aaron contains a dead body and one Aaron contains uh, the source of life the Shechina of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, and their, their juxtaposition was baffling of course to the observer the juxtaposition of these two arcs of these two um, the coffin and the, the ark of the Aaron HaKodesh was somewhat surprising but the symbolism of this association is that religious consciousness Avodah Hashem essentially is composed of two different facets of two different layers one is ritual religion in the narrow sense Torah mitzvot relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu Chesed essentially all the elements which I've discussed in this series of Shiurim until this point. But there's a second facet to Avodah Hashem, to a Ben Torah, to a religious identity. And that's not just the Ark containing the Torah and the Luchos, symbolizing Torah mitzvahs, but the Ark of Jewish history. Yosef HaTzadik was the pioneer of Jewish history. He descended into Egypt, paving the way for our own descent into Egypt and our own survival in Egypt, and ultimately the Exodus, which was so formative and so seminal in the birth of Jewish history. And in his life, he established a template for Jewish experience and Jewish success outside the environs of Eretz Yisrael. In short, Yosef HaTzadik is the exemplar of Jewish history. And his Aron, his Ark, marked the element or symbolized the component of sensitivity to Jewish history, participation in Jewish history, 
as an indivisible and irreplaceable part of Avodah Hashem. Avodah Hashem, the Jewish march, the Jewish journey, is driven by two arcs. The arc of Halacha, of Torah, and the arc of the Jewish struggle to battle against history, to perfect history, to withstand the challenges and persecution which history displays or history poses to us because we are the selected people, because of our unique role in history and the seething jealousy and anger which this unique role inevitably elicits from our partners in history. The Medrash speaks of a very interesting complaint of Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu had good license to complain to Kaddish Baruch he wasn't being granted entry into Eretz Yisrael and not only that but he wasn't even being buried in Eretz Yisrael he was buried in a nondescript grave in the plains or the hills overlooking the Jordan River Har Nevo so Moshe questions Hashem Amr Ablevi the Medrash in Medrash Rabbi Devar and Parsha Bey says Amr Lafan of Rabboni Shalala Moshe claimed Hashem Atzmosav Shal Yosef Nechnesu Laretz Vani Eni Nechnes Laretz Yosef's bones enter and I don't and of course Moshe's claim had greater urgency because Moshe himself was responsible for attending to Yosef's bones during the 40 years of the desert journey beginning of Parshas B'Shalach when the entire nation is busied with the exodus and collecting wealth and the euphoria of departing Egypt Moshe himself has the wherewithal and the, the vision and the personal balance and equilibrium to remember that ancient promise to Yosef HaTzadik to remove his bones and he alone attends to, the, to their removal and to their, their maintenance during 40 years the Gemara Nazir actually derives that a Tamimes, someone who has come into contact with dead body or dead bones, is allowed to enter Machna Leviyah. He cannot enter Machna Shechina. He can't enter the innermost Machna. But he can enter Machna Leviyah. And the proof for this is that Moshe was a Tamimes for much of the 40 years of the desert. And yet he lived in Machna Leviyah. Because the Pasuk in Mishalach writes, Vayikach Moshe es atzmos Yosef imo, the Gemara Nazir Darshans, imo b'mechitzasa. Moshe didn't delegate attending these bones to some secondary person. He saw it as an honor, as a privilege, equal to his ascent of the top Harsina, receiving the Torah, building the Mishkan. This was a personal privilege, an honor that Moshe wanted to attend to and dare not delegate to others. So Moshe's claim to HaKadosh Baruch who carries a certain degree of compulsion. How come Yosef enters and his bones are transported from Mitzrayim and I transported those bones for 40 years and he gets the privilege of being buried in Eretz Yisrael and Shechem and I can't be buried so in this instance according to the Medrash HaKadosh Baruch Hu responds to Moshe Amal HaKadosh Baruch Hu Misha hoda bi'artso nikbar bi'artso Misha lo hoda bi'artso eno nikbar bi'artso Yosef hoda bi'artso Yosef acknowledged his origins reaffirmed his commitment and connection to the land of Israel how did he do that? so the Medrash tells us that he constantly identified himself as a Jew he refers to himself as Ki gunov gunavti ha'ivrim he announces that he was uh, hijacked or uh, taken hostage to the land of the Jews in fact when the wife of Potiphera complains about Yosef, fabricates uh, rumors about Yosef's alleged behavior. So she herself says, Ish Ivri. 
So evidently Yosef wore his Jewish identity very proudly, very firmly, even though he inevitably was exposed to ridicule and, and to discrimination. And because he displayed that identity, he's considered someone who is Hodebiartso. Very interesting matters about the importance of Eretz Yisrael and Jewish identity. A person who maintains Jewish identity as a share in Eretz Yisrael, Yosef, by maintaining the Jewish identity, is buried in Eretz Yisrael, and then, of course, vice versa. Commitment to Eretz Yisrael is an irreplaceable part of Jewish identity, something Mert Hashem maybe we'll talk about in future Shi'urim. But essentially, Yosef had a very firm and unwavering sense of his Jewish identity, and therefore he has the privilege of being buried in Eretz Yisrael. And Moshe, at one point early in his career, does not sufficiently stake his, his racial or national origins. When he visits the daughters of Yisrael and ultimately marries Tzipara, so they refer to him as Ish Mitzri Hitzilano Mi'an The Egyptian saved us, because they thought he was an Egyptian. He looked like he was an Egyptian. He had been raised in an Egyptian palace. And the matter says, V'hushomeh And Moshe heard this and didn't correct them. And that momentary allowance of individuals to see him, not through the lens of his Jewish identity, but to see him as an Egyptian, was a slight deficiency in Moshe's Jewish identity at this early stage of his career, certainly relative to Yosef's adamant insistence on identifying himself as a Jew. And HaKadosh Baruch Hu offers Moshe this difference as sanction for Yosef's being buried in Eretz Yisrael. Yosef was Hodeh Be'artso, Nikbar Be'artso, and Moshe's not being buried. So Yosef really is this very, very, very powerful icon of Jewish history, of Jewish identity, of Jewish journey and struggle through through Gullus, through history, through wandering. And the placement of his ark, alongside the ark of the Luchos, of the Tara, of the Kruvim, of the Kisa Akavod, delivers a very, very powerful message about the two-dimensional nature of Avodah Hashem, of religion. That religion has to spread beyond the narrow, the eternal, but the, so to speak, parochial confines of mitzvahs and Torah. There has to be a sense that a Jew has of contributing to history, of their role in history, of the suffering of Jewish history, and the willingness to participate in that suffering. The Gemara in Shabbos and Daf Lamed Aleph presents a snapshot of some of the questions we'll be facing when we enter the next world. When a person is is um, encounter, a person encounters final judgment day, final justice. So these are the challenges that he must answer. Nasasa v'natata be'amuna. Were you honest and ethical? Did you display integrity? Kavati itim latara. Did you dedicate significant times to Torah study? Asakta v'peryavarivia. Did you get dedicate time and resources to building a family, to raising a family? And the fourth question, sipisa v'yeshua. Did you anticipate redemption? Did you participate in redemption? Did you display a sensitivity to the national um, history, to the struggle of Jewish history, the persecution of Jewish history, and ultimately the repair of that struggle, the redemption of Jewish history? Very interesting Rashi in Parshas Vayishlach. The conclusion of Parshas Vayishlach cites the genealogy of Esav in very, very, almost excruciating detail. Part of the reason that his genealogy is so elaborately described is in effect Esav is being dispensed with. 
the Torah is concluding Esav's history in a thorough and comprehensive fashion, so that after Parshas Vayishlach, commencing with Parshas Vayeshev, it can turn its attention to the continuing evolution of Jewish history, Vayeshev, Yaakov, Be'eretz, Megure Aviv, Be'eretz Kenan. Yaakov is the one who lives in Israel and persists in the chase of Jewish history. So this very extensive listing of Esau's children and of Esau's family, in part, is a literary device to discard Esau, for he no longer participates in the great march of Jewish history. And within that section, there's a very interesting pair of psukim which attempt to describe Esau's dislocation from Jewish history. Paraklamid Vav in Bereshis, Pasuk Vav, Vayikach Esav es Nashav, Vyas Banav, Vyas bin Osav, Vyas Kol Nashal's base. So he takes his daughters and his sons, his wives, his cattle, Vyas Kol Kinyano, Asher Rachash Be'eretz Kinan, and all the possessions and material which he purchased in the land of Kinan. Vyelech El Eretz, Mibnei Yaakov Achievani, travels to a land. The Torah doesn't really describe, doesn't clarify which land. Vayelech el Eretz, Mipnei Yaakov Achiv. Because of Yaakov, and it's not clear why, what role Yaakov had in um, forcing or compelling Esav to leave. The next Pasuk, Pasuk Zion, tries to somewhat clarify, but still leaves more question marks than answers. Ki Rav, Yachdav, there. Cattle was too large. Sounds very similar to the decision, the dilemma facing Avraham and Lot. They're too wealthy, they're too affluent. At this point, the Torah would have us believe they were so affluent that the entire land of Canaan couldn't sustain their joint presence. One of them had to leave, so Asaph chose to leave. But unlike the departure of Lot from Avraham, which is carefully outlined by Pashas Lachlacha, Torah doesn't really describe the terms or motives for Esav's departure. But Rashi fills in the blanks. Rashi quotes in Medrash Rabbah, Mibnei Yaakov Achiv, what aspect of Yaakov forced Esav to leave? Rashi writes as follows, a very, very haunting image. Mibnei Shtar Chov Shal Gizeras Kiger Yazaracha Hamutol Al Zaro Shal Yitzchak Esav was crushed by the prospect of Brisbane Abbasarim, by the prospect of Jewish history, by the potential for suffering, by the potential for exile, of descending into Egypt and facing suffering. Esau was crushed by that. Amar, so he reasoned as follows, I want to leave this land. It's too hot. It's too challenging. The whole process is too intimidating. I want no part. Not in the great gift which this land promises, which Esav had acknowledged. Because I can't pay back the debt. I can't shoulder the burden. Esav basically is terrified by the burden of Jewish history. And terrified by the burden, he surrenders the glory. And that's why the Torah doesn't care to tell us which land he went to, because it's really irrelevant. He left Eretz Yisrael, he found some quiet land with manicured lawns and tranquil, tranquil malls to shop in. Because Israel was too challenging, and settling in Israel was too intimidating. Because participating in the battle of Jewish history, 
and experiencing and shouldering the burden of Geri Yezer Acha Beheretz Lohem is too much for Esav. So he effectively dislocates himself from Jewish history. Vayelech El Eretz, he just finds some lands, some nondescript generic land, because he's aware of the historical burden which Yaakov is about to bear. And this is really the second moment in which Esav sort of dislodges himself from responsibility. And these two dislodgements, these two flights, are reflective of the two elements of religious experience and Parshas told us when he sells Yaakov the Bechara so Esav reasons and Rashi comments on the Pasuk that Esav is afraid of all the death and danger and peril and challenge which religion poses he recognizes the glory of serving as the Bechara serving as a priest in Beis HaMikdash but he also senses the vigilance which must be displayed and the severe punishments which may emerge in consequence of violating the boundaries of Beis HaMikdash. So in Parshish Toldos, Esau finds religion in the narrow sense, Beis HaMikdash, Korbanos, Tara, Mitzvah, Averos. He finds that world too burdensome, too intimidating. And he sells it to Yaakov. And in Parshas Vayishlach, he finds Eretz Yisrael, Jewish history, redeeming history, struggling with history, that he finds too overwhelming. So he dislocates in that as well, and he just finds a land to live in, and he moves out of Israel. And of course, if Esau's great failure lies in that historical dislocation, then of course our success and our command, our mission, is to contribute our energy, our resources, and our faith not just to Torah and mitzvahs in the narrow sense, but to participation and sensitivity to Jewish history in the broader sense. I think the same duality, the same um, two-dimensional nature of Avodah Hashem is on display at Haramoria, that great seminal moment in religious history when the seeds of religion are being firmly planted in the Jewish imagination and the Jewish consciousness. Abraham literally offers Yitzchak as a sacrifice, and he all but sacrifices Yitzchak were it not for HaKadosh Baruch Hu dispatching Malachim to Avram, Avram, Bayam, Hineni, Atishach, Yadchal, Anar, to prevent him. And the sacrifice of Yitzchak um, reflects the Yiras Hashem, the Avas Hashem, the commitment to Kodesh Baruch Hu, the, the, the perhaps the future of Korbanos offered in Maria. But after Kodesh Baruch Hu prevents Avraham from sacrificing Yitzchak, he points to the ram, the Ayel Achar, the other carbon. And by employing the word Vihine Ayel Achar Nachaz Basvach Bekarnav, essentially the complementary nature between the carbon of Yitzchak and the carbon of the Ayel is being established. And that ram was stuck in the thicket, was stuck in the bushes. Nechaz basvach bekarnav. So the Medrash in Vayikra, Parsha Chavtes, questions this aspect of the ram. Why was the ram necessarily caught in the thicket, the bushes? Amar of Hunabar Yitzchak, Melamed, Shehera Kadosh Baruchu Leavram, Esayil. Hashem indicated the ram. Nitash mechoresh zeh, it was drawing its horns, it was loosening itself from one thicket. 
And as it loosened itself from one thicket, it was almost immediately becoming entangled in another thicket. The ram's struggle to free itself from the thicket and from the brush is emblematic of the historical struggle of your children. They become entangled with various nations. And by entanglement with nations, they're persecuted, they face, they encounter discrimination and suffering. And just as they seemingly free themselves from one sovereign state, from one set of persecution and discrimination, just as they free themselves, they seem to plunge almost immediately into a different crisis, into a different face-off. From Babel to Madai, from Madai to Greece, from Greece to Rome, but ultimately, the horns of this isle, the shofar, the mitzvahs, and the participation in sacrificing this isle and sensitivity to Jewish history will lead to the redemption of Jewish history. So at Haram Maria, Avram is, so to speak, forced to acknowledge these two korbanos, the korban of Yitzchak, the korban of the isle, the Aron of the Shnei Luchos Abris, the Aron HaKodesh, and the Aron of Yosef HaTzadik, Hod of the pioneer of Jewish history. And Esav manages to reject this duality time and time again. The Medrash in the beginning of Eicha comments on the term Eicha. Chazal provides several drushos to explain the term Eicha. It's a conjugation of the word Eiko, it perhaps refers to the term Ayaka, which HaKadosh Baruch Hu questioned Adam Arishan after her sin. But the most literal reading of the word Eicha is simply the word How. What one might call a rhetorical How. Not How with the expectation of response, but How just noting wonder and disbelief. So the matters in the beginning of Eicha states as follows. Shloshan Nisnabu Belashon Eicha. There were three who prophesied using the term Eicha. Moshe, Yeshaya, the Yermia. Moshe Amar Eicha Asalabadi Tarachem Rivchem Masachem in the beginning of Parshas Devarim expressed wonder, the difficulty of maintaining and tending to the needs of this quickly growing nation. Yeshaya Amar Eicha Hisalazona Kiryane Amana. He wondered how corrupt Jerusalem had become. How precipitous the decline of Jerusalem, the loss of sovereignty, the capture, and the ransacking of Yerushalayim. The Menrish concludes, Moshe Moshe saw the Jewish people during times of tranquility and prosperity, and he used the term Eicha. saw them during their impetuous lack of discipline, demoralization, during moments of sin and corruption, when they had already become ugly, and despised, and tortured, and captured, and destroyed, after evidently, 
there's more than just prophetic symmetry to the fact that Moshe, Yeshaya, and Yirmiya each employed the same term and at different stages. Chazal are not merely noting some literary coincidence of common employment of a single term. But they're noting that there's a thread which laces Jewish history, which binds Jewish history. And that's the thread of Eicha. The Jewish history is not rational. And it can't be understood in rational terms. Jewish history is the type of arc or the type of development that elicits wonderment, baffling, it's, it's perplexing, it's irrational. How disproportionately we're hated, how disproportionately we suffer, and of course how disproportionately we triumph during our moments of triumph. And that term Eicha, and the recognition of the disproportion of Jewish history, is a sensitivity which three prophets noted. At different times and at different phases of the Jewish evolution, during moments of prosperity, during moments of corruption, and ultimately during the period of, of suffering, and of punishment, and of consequence. But the fact that they each utter the same word represents the reality that they knew that Jewish history, at its high points, during its moments of triumph, at its low points, morally, religiously, and at its national disastrous moments and tragic moments, moments of calamity, would always be defined by the term Eicha. Because the Jewish march is not a march that can be understood in rational, classical terms. Because we're the selected people, because of our unique role in history, because we live the history of redemption, not just the history of nature, our experience will never conform to classic national patterns. For us... Just achieving normal stability, settling our nation and our homeland, will elicit the hostility and the opposition of an entire planet. And this essentially, this legacy of recognizing Eicha, of recognizing the baffling and perplexing nature of irrational Jewish history, and the willingness to participate and to submit to that irrationality and perplexing and challenging and, and burdensome experience, was essentially the the vision of Rabbi Akiva, the outsider, who hadn't studied Torah for 40 years, the vision which he employed to comfort his peers, a very famous Gemara which concludes Makos, when Dafchav Dalad Amin Beis. Rabbi Akiva and his colleagues are visiting the ruins of Yushalayim, the smoldering ashes above Harabayas. They reach Harasalfim, they reach the nearby mountain of Harabayas, and they, they ultimately they, they travel from Harasafim to Harabayas and they see rodents and, and um, foxes and various animals scurrying across the ruins of the Beis HaMikdash and Rabbi Akiva's colleagues begin to weep they recognize that a place which was once so hallowed now is defamed and now is um, profaned by the presence of animals freely, freely scampering across the ruins and Rebekiva laughs. And when they inquire of him why he laughs, he says, because there are two prophecies which are juxtaposed in a Pasuk, in a Pasuk in Yeshaya. Yeshaya Paraches juxtaposes Uriah HaKohen and Zechariah ben Yiverechia. Now seemingly, Uriah and Zechariah have little to do with each other, have little in common. 
Uriah lived in the period of the first base Hamikdash, and Zechariah lived in the period of the second base Hamikdash. So, what logic is there for Yeshaya associating them in this pasuk in Parachas Ve'Aideli Edim? I will establish witnesses. Uriah Cohen, Zechariah ben Yerverachiyah. They weren't contemporaries. So, we keep a reason based on this pasuk in Yeshaya that the Torah conditions the prophecy of Zechariah upon the prophecy of Uriah. Uriah prophesies about destruction. And Zechariah prophesied about redemption. Aria spoke of Lachain Biglalchem, Sion Sadetecharesh, Pasuk and Micha. He predicted that Sion and Yushalayim would be devastated. And Zechariah, of course, spoke famous prophecies about the ultimate redemption, Odi Yeshivu Zekenim, Zekenos, Berchavos Yushalayim. Elderly people would once again inhabit the streets of Yushalayim, children would play. And we keep a reason that until Uriah's prophecy of destruction had been fulfilled, he harbored no hopes that Zechariah, he had no certainty that Zechariah's prophecy would be implemented. But once he witnessed Uriah's prophecy coming to fruition, he was fairly confident, absolutely certain, that Zechariah's prophecy of redemption would be fulfilled. What was Rabbi Kiva's logic? Simply because Yeshaya incidentally juxtaposes Uriah and Zechariah in the same pasuk, Yeshaya Parachas, so their prophecies are conditioned, their prophecies are are, in, are intertwined and uh, and mutually dependent. I think Rabbi Akiva understood the message of Eicha and the legacy of Eicha, which Moshe, Yeshaya, and Yirmiyah each each um, implemented or each evoked. Uriah described the destruction of Yerushalayim. Rome captured many different countries and many different cultures. But the Roman Empire discovered the secret for long-term survival and the accrual of wealth and might. After they captured various empires, they demanded two resources. They allowed these empires and cultures to sustain themselves, to survive. They weren't all swallowed culturally by the Roman Empire and the Roman culture. But these nations had to pay tribute, had to pay monetary tribute, as well as provide soldiers for the Roman war machinery. And this policy allowed Rome, sort of catapulted Rome, to world supremacy. Because they secured themselves a steady flow of gold, of currency, and a steady flow of soldiers. So Rome captured many different cultures and many different peoples, but there was only one nation whose temple they ransacked, whose culture they attempted to exterminate, whose leaders they killed in vicious, horrible, horrifying fashion, the degree to which they routed and pursued the Jewish nation was disproportionate to the degree in which they captured all the other cultures which stood in their way of world domination. And this is essentially what Uriah saw. Uriah saw that Yushalayim would not just be captured, and logically Rome should have captured our temple, but sustained it so that our culture should sustain itself and continue to enrich a people who would then, by tribute and providing soldiers, would support the Roman Empire, the Roman March. It's one thing to capture the Mikdash, but it's quite another thing to burn Yushalayim and salt the ground, to march into the Mesa Mikdash and stab the Parochas. Maria sensed the seething hostility of the Romans to the Jewish people, and he was immediately attuned to the disproportion of Jewish history, the disproportion which is a function of our 
playing the role, the very difficult but glorious function of Amanifcha, the badge of honor of Jewish history, are reassessed. And Rabbi Akiva, seeing Aliyah's prophecy being enacted, seeing the disproportion of Jewish history before his very eyes, was uncertain that just the Jewish history would be disproportionate and irrational. During the moment of destruction, it would also be disproportionate and irrational and baffling during the moment of redemption, which is essentially Zechariah's prophecy. What is so apocalyptic about people growing old, about walking with canes in the streets of Yishalayim, with children playing in the streets? This is so normal and natural for every other nation. But what is so normal and natural for most nations is apocalyptic and hard-earned for the Jewish people. And Zechariah in that Parakhes concludes his nevuah by saying, Ki This scene of Jewish people growing old will be baffling, will be perplexing, will be um, yeah, um, in, in this inscrutable, indecipherable to people who live to see the end, the final chapters and final frames of Jewish history, the redemption of Jewish history. They'll be perplexed, they'll be astonished. And Hashem says, I'll also be astonished in a very, very extreme form of hyperbole. So Yeshaya is uttering the disproportionate and irrational nature of Jewish history and recognizing the dimensions of redemption as being equally disproportionate. And the Akiva sensed the parallelism between Ori and Zechariah. The Akiva sensed that if we suffer disproportionately, it's because our, nation, our national history is different and we will likewise triumph disproportionately. And that's essentially why Rabbi Kiva was so confident, not just because of some incidental juxtaposition, but because Yeshai himself, by juxtaposing them, sensed that there was some inner dimension of parity, inner dimension of equivalence. That's why Yeshai refers to them as two witnesses. These are my two witnesses of Jewish history. One witness speaks of the Jewish struggle and suffering, and one witness speaks of the Jewish struggle and redemption, but the similarity between these two witnesses, the bond between these two witnesses, the unifying content, is that they sense that Jewish history is unlike any other history, and of course that they're willing to shoulder that burden and participate in Jewish history in the spirit of Yaakov and of Yosef, of Moshe, of Yeshai, of Yirmiya, and ultimately the sensitivity to Jewish history, which Yubi Akiva displayed. You have been listening to Arav Moshe Tarigan, Essentials of Avodat Hashem. The daily Midrash, I continue from the Midrash that we read yesterday. Yesterday's Midrash was on the Pasuk, Yifkod Hashem Elokei HaRuchot. The understanding that each and every individual is in fact individual and different, and therefore God is Elokei HaRuchot. He is the one who understands every individual person, but Moshe Rabbeinu was asking that the next leader, the one who will succeed him, Ish al Haida, the one who will be the leader of the people, should be have that ability, to the extent that human being can have it, to understand, to carry, to suffer, to get into the shoes of each and every person. The Midrash then continues on what should have been an examination and exemplification of the same principle, and yet sounds very different. This is a standard phrase in Midrash, which means I just told you a principle, but now I'll give you a a story, a parable, which will exemplify it. Not so clear how this parable exemplifies it, but it makes a very important point in any event. The Melech, there was a king who married a woman. 
והיה לו שושבין. שושבין, in, in weddings, שושבין is the best man, but it's someone who's more than that, he's, he's the friend who, who follows along, who, who accompanies the wedding, the young couple. Whenever the king would get angry at his wife, which happens, the Shushbin used to make peace, he would make shalom between them. He would lefayes, he would calm the king down, and the king would, in fact, uh, uh, come back and have a meeting of the minds with his wife. And then the Shushbin was dying. So he said to the king, Please, I beg of you, pay more attention to your wife. Have your mind come closer to her mind. Put your mind about your wife, meaning understand her better. The king then said, It's not easy to give this kind of advice to a king. If you command me about my wife, you give me instructions concerning my wife, instruct my wife about me that she should be more respectful of my honor. Remember, we're dealing with a king. I think the parable is a little bit hard for us to understand because we don't usually have a situation of a woman married to a king and therefore our relationship between man and woman will be different. But here, the initial is going to be God and Amisel. So even though Amisel is called the wife of God, but nonetheless, God is the king and Amisel are the subjects. Kaviyachol, we now explain the nimshal, the meaning of the parable. This is what God said. You come to command me about them, as is written, Yifkod Hashem, Elokei Ruchot, you're telling me that I should understand them. This is the continuation of the previous Medrash. That he wasn't just telling God to appoint a leader, but appoint a leader from within your special understanding of each individual. In other words, the Medrash is understanding that Moshe Rabbeinu is also pushing God to be more understanding by calling him Elokei Ruchot. You can understand, therefore you should understand. And that I think is the point being made by this unusual and special Midrash. Moshe Rabbeinu is telling God to be more understanding, but God answers, they should be more careful of my honor. My dechtiv, Zabit b'nei Yisrael kobani lachmi, the very following pasha, after the command, the request to appoint a new leader, is Pashat HaKobanot. And of course, it's terribly out of place. Pashat HaKobanot, we expect it in Vayikra. And if it's found someplace in Bamidbar, but how is it connected to the request to appoint a leader? And God answers, not by appointing a leader, but by giving them Kobanot. So the Midrash says, it's a dialogue. God, Moshe is not only asking for a new leader, his successor, but he's asking God, as is Moshe Rabbeinu's traditional role, to be the intermediary between the Jews and God, but now he knows he's dying. So he says, appoint another leader, but, but the leader won't be as good as me. So understand them better. Come close to them and, and, and be mitpayes. Come close to them. So that even before the anger can take place, it is though I have helped you get over it. And God says, have them be more respectful of my honor by bringing kobanot. Why a kobanot is kobanot? Old Mephashim explained. Kobanot are the pious. You don't need Moshe Rabbeinu. It's the Jews themselves. Despite what they have done, despite any anger they might have caused, and there's friction in this marriage between God and man. But at the same time, together with the friction, there's the Shushbin. And what's the Shushbin? Not Moshe Rabbeinu, but the Kobanot, the service of God. Avodat Hashem. The daily Avodat Hashem. 
that rises, the smoke rises before God, and we serve God in our hearts and our actions, and in our words, even as we are not perfect, and our relationship has its little, little fictional points, but nonetheless, the pious exists, and therefore, a leader can be appointed much, much later on, but he won't have to bear the terrible burden of Sheva Benu bore for 40 years and is apparently so frustrated by his inability to ever fully and, and the burden that's upon him. So God gives B'nai Israel the mitzvah of Korbanot, of Avodat Hashem, of serving of God. And that produces a permanent relationship in which the fiction, the shalom, the pius, the fights, the arguments can all exist and maintain themselves Ad biyat ha-Mashiach ha-Goel b'mher yameinu. Amen. You've been listening to KMTT, the Torah podcast by Mishivat HaRetzion. And this is Ezra Beck wishing you call to tomorrow's shiur. will be in Mesechet Brachot HaLachah B'Magadah. I will be giving the shiur. And until then, Kvaitim LaTorah. Have steady and permanent and regular Torah study. Spread KMTT and other means of Torah study among your friends and acquaintances. And we'll be back tomorrow with KMTT. Ki mitzion, teitzei Torah, udvar Hashem, mi Yerushalayim.